Eastern Airlines used to used to run a shuttle between it wasn't Kennedy, it was probably LaGuardia, one of the New York airfields anyway, it might have been Newark, I can't remember, and Washington Dulles. Every hour on the half hour. And they would guarantee you'd turn up for the shuttle and you'd get on board, and they would guarantee that if the aircraft that was that you'd gone to 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 catch was full, they would guarantee that they would pull another one out the hangar and and fly you up there. Incredible, incredible. And they had just phased out the Connies, and they'd just phased in the Electra on this deal. And I had to go up on the 7.30 flight one day from, from Washington to New York uh, for some BAC reason. And I turned up and I was literally the one passenger over for the Electra flight. <laughs> and they said, look, terribly sorry. And I said, well, it's my bad luck. I wait for that. No, no, we won't wait for the 8 o'clock flight, not at all. You know, we'll, we will get an airplane out for you. And they pulled out a Connie, can you believe it? Which was still, you know, serviceable. Mm. Pulled out a Connie, and there was me, a flight crew of four, <laughs> and a cabin crew of four, and that was all that was on this aeroplane. How long was this flight? Oh, it didn't take very long, even at a Connie, I can't remember. Probably. I'm guessing an hour and a half, maybe, is that? And it was absolutely wonderful. By the time I got to New York, I was absolutely full of old fashions or something or other, <laughs> but, but not in the state I was in. I hastened to when I got to Mexico City. <laughs> and it was absolutely, it's the only time I've ever flown in a Connie. And it was you were the absolutely, only passenger. It was the only passenger. And it was, I remember, it was absolutely delightful. We, we sold some, we, I had nothing to do with it. A lot of wildlands were sold in Central America, probably about 66 now, I'd say, to um, uh, Tucker in, in, uh, in El Salvador, Laxa in Nicaragua, La Nica no, in Nicaragua, and Laxa in Costa Rica, and then latterly Tan up in Honduras as well. And I got Joe to go out there quite a lot and do stories on these things. And it really was a delight since Central, I thought, Central America in those days. And I got a, I got a call from, from, from Derek John. And um, I, I got this, um, well, no, it'd be, it'd be a fax, no emails in those days, saying, would I meet him in, oh, it might have been this bloke, Pet Ridge. No, that's another story altogether. And... Um, I needed to be. I need to get myself to Miami quickly, as quickly as I could, for, for whatever reason. I can't remember what it was now. Something to do with with some PR <clears throat> thing. So um, there were these. Uh, Tacker did go to Miami. The other two didn't. They just flew around the Central America lot and from from down into Venezuela. Uh, but Tacker did, but there were there were no flights. I knew the Tacker people pretty well then. Quite a small operation then. Quite big now. And um, 
So uh, I was talking to these chaps, and the the guys in the in the ops department said, "Look, we've got a we got a DC four that's a freighter that's going up tonight." You hit a ride on that. I said that would save my bacon. That would be terrific. And I thought, wow, I'm going to fly the DC four. That really would be rather nice, <laughs> actually. And he said, yeah, we're flying five tons of bananas up to up to Miami. You see, or across, I suppose, to Miami, geographically speaking. So I got on this aeroplane, and, and and this one, I mean, it was, I think. The operation was perhaps somewhat questionable in terms of safety. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and they probably had a navigator. Anyway, there were certainly three of them. I think only three. don't think they had a navigator. And me, and five tons of bananas. And I was on jump seat, and off we went. And it was an absolutely perfect, it was wonderful, full moon, calm, beautiful, and I can remember now, I haven't got any pictures now, they went with one of my divorces, I think, probably, but I can remember sitting in the cockpit and looking back at the leading edge and the moonlight lighting up all the the dents in the leading edge mm. where it had been hit by hailstones, you know. <laughs> and we flew, uh, and off we went. And it, it, had a, it had a sort of fairly rudimentary autopilot, which would probably keep it within about 15 degrees of heading and about a thousand feet of altitude, I suppose. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember what altitude we were flying at. Five, six thousand feet, nothing much more than that. Over the Gulf of Mexico, trundling along, I suppose, at maybe 250 knots, something of that sort. And um, first of all, you'll need, I think you know this, Riley. I think you know what's coming. First of all, the, 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 the captain went back to make a cup of coffee. We thought that's a good idea. Anyway, he didn't return. And he said to me, oh, he said, you, you've done some flying. And uh, I said, nothing like this. He said, well, don't touch anything, but the co-pilot's there. So the co-pilot. And the co-pilot, oh, the, 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 the other two guys that were already legitimately having a kip, you mm. see. There were just the two of us and, 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 and me up there. And then the co-pilot said, well, where the hell is he? And then, where's this guy? He said, hold tight. Said, don't, don't touch anything. We're absolutely fine. I'll go back and... See what happened. And there I was sitting in this aeroplane, not having the slightest idea what to do if something went wrong, or even, <laughs> even able to recognize a warning light if in fact they were still working on this ancient aeroplane, you see, with these, I suppose, Pratt and Whitney engines throbbing away like that with ham standard propellers, no doubt. And, and he didn't come back, and I thought, this is odd. You know, we're going a few hours now. We've probably got a few, I had no idea, but we've probably got a few more hours before we yeah. get to, to Miami. But, you know, if we're getting into that area, <laughs> maybe somebody should be up here who knows what cooks. And I went back and they were all asleep. <laughs> they were all asleep. Anyway, they, you know, they woke up and apologised profusely and, 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 and took the aircraft in. But uh, I thought, no, now hang on, this is no place for a, a low church Anglican like Mike <laughs> Savage. We had, um, a, we, on this, this first overseas demo we did with 002, which was a very short range aeroplane actually, being a prototype, we, um, we took it into 
Beirut because one of the airlines we were, it was between wars, it was when Beirut was rather lovely. Most perfect, I, I don't know if you've been there, most perfect match of, of the Middle East and sophisticated Western Europe, you know, sort of. Anyway, and um, the um, the British Embassy were in, involved as, as usual. Unfortunately, the, 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 the commercial secretary, who only died a couple of years ago, actually, was a lovely Englishman, a, a Liverpudlian called Barry Lello, and he had been a merchant seaman, and he was good. He was, he was one of these embassy people that really were on the ball. He, he would buck the issue and just get on with things. And he loved aeroplanes. He knew nothing about flying. He loved aeroplanes. And um, when we left, uh, when the aircraft left, Beirut. I I stayed behind for whatever reason, perhaps to clear up something with the with the, with the media there or something of that sort. And it then flew on to Damascus to demonstrate to Syrian Arab Airlines. I don't know if if, if that's still the name of the airline. If indeed they've got one now, Barry Lello and I were deputed to join the aircraft by road in Damascus in time for the ambassador's cocktail party at 7.30 that particular evening. So I said to Barry, well, no, what do we do? He said, we drive there. I thought, really? Okay, <laughs> fine. So he got the embassy car and a driver, and we had this magnificent drive, which took, we left Beirut, six o'clock in the morning, it was still quite cool, and we drove all the way through the Baker Valley, the old Roman granary of the times, of course. And then we stayed for ages in this no man's land between Lebanon and, and Syria. And eventually we got, and then we carried on and we, we drove into Damascus. We just got to our hotel, which we hadn't lost the address of. Uh, and had a wash and brush up and went to the cocktail party. And the next day, we, we, we sent the driver back on his own to take the car back to Beirut, and Barry and I clambered on the aeroplane. It had taken us about nine hours to get from Beirut to Damascus, and it took us precisely nine minutes to get back from <laughs> Damascus to Beirut. And that was in the days when we were really not supposed to fly that quickly over land. Mm. Well, see, I was going to tell you about, about just going back to Handy Page for a moment, and this chap, Gus Lamy, remember I said they were rather, rather an, an advanced-thinking company? Mm. They, were, um, they were a great company for projects. What, what aircraft company wasn't in those days for projects. And the, the chief designer, a chap called Godfrey Lee, no longer with us, and he was associated with a chap called Charles Joy, and they were very, but you know, people talk about laminar flow these days. Happy Page had laminar flow buttoned up right back in the 60s. In fact, I had one project, HP 117, which was an, uh, a tailless 300-seater laminar flow aircraft. With transatlantic range, of course, it was a paper project. Would it have ever flown if it did? Well, it would have probably flown, but would it have come to fruition? I don't know. And the other thing they had, they detected even then 
that there was going to be, with supersonic flying, unless you could get terribly high, which was out of the question then, and probably still is to a certain extent, there was going to be a problem with a supersonic boom. So they had a project, which I think was a 90-seater for a supersonic transport, which cruised at about 1.15. Now, doesn't that ring a bell with what we're reading about Arian and various other people these oh, days? They were there first. You know, Bill, nothing in this world is, 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 is original, is it? And they had a they had a um, a flying jeep, Project P thirty five, which was a jumping jeep. So there's your flying car. Which was a flying which was which 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 actually um, had thrusters underneath, so you you couldn't actually fly it around as a flying car. It had wings or anything, but it would it it could be allegedly it was never built. If if you uh, if you happen to be you have your jeep in a, a sort of battlefield area. And there happened to be a hint or something, you could hop over it and things like Oh, it was it was a fascinating place. There was always something new going on. You 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 you've heard of Trans Brazil in Brazil. Well, it was called Sadia beforehand. Well, when it was Sadia, they bought they actually bought some heralds. So it was another no, to be fair, that was another very successful operation. They bought, I can't remember, two or three or four heralds. And I had nothing to do with that, didn't go out there at that time. But they bought these heralds and they performed well for them. And the airline was uh, instigated, run by an amazing chap that, that was well known in the industry called Dr. Omar Fontana, Brazilian chap. Big, tall fellow with an incredibly wizened, snarled up sort of face. Uh, and you'd think, oh, wow, you know, keep away from him. He was, in fact, one of the most delightful, gentle people you could ever meet. Vastly rich. Um, he was a, a, a very keen pianist, both classical and jazz. He had his own jazz club in Sao Paulo. And he lived in this super ranch out in the countryside with his wife. I don't know if he had any children, actually, but it really doesn't matter. Anyway, that was a handy post day. Fast forward, he bought some 111s, which again, performed well. And uh, before he bought them, Derek John, who was my immediate boss, uh, ex-Rolls-Royce, uh, and and um, he was also answerable to this chap, uh, Ian Lawson, this AVM, this, this Wellington pilot, uh, a super chap, Derek John, ex-Welsh rugby fiend. Uh, he said to me one day at Wavis, he said, look, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going over to see Omar Fontana, who he didn't know, to talk about the possibilities of some limbs. I said, all right. He said, and, uh, I'd like you to come with me. I said, bro, oh, Derek, great, but why? He said, well, I've not met him. I've got no means of entree. You were with Handy Page. Quite clever thinking, I thought, really. You were with Handy Page. He had some heralds. They performed well. There's some slight connection. I hadn't met Omar Fontana. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine, if you will. <laughs> so we, we trundled over to Sao Paulo, as one does from Heathrow, and... Um, 
we we went up to his house one sunny afternoon, gorgeous sunny afternoon, or this ranch, magnificent place, you know, sort of straight out of one of these sort of J.R. Ewing um, soaps, really, and uh, white fences and horses. Oh, lovely. And we knocked at the door, and the door opened, and it was his wife. We subsequently found a charming lady. And we could, we could hear this incredible classical piano music coming from somewhere. And we introduced, oh yes, she said, he is expecting you, but she said, she said, I'm terribly sorry. She said, he's on the Tchaikovsky now. I don't know when you're going to get in to see him. <laughs> Would you like to come in? So we said, yes. Yeah. So we were shown into this, this, this sitting room, I suppose we were called in this country, these wonderful French doors and the lawns and all this sort of stuff. And there was this big man playing this 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 lovely grand piano, you know, a Steinway or a Bosendorfer or something like that, with the lid, funnily enough, used to. And on top of the lid, I quickly espied a tumbler, rather nice glass tumbler, probably at least Waterford Crystal, I would say, which quite clearly was half full of whiskey. <laughs> he carried on playing, and he just took one hand off, and he, he didn't look at us, he just went to some seats the other side of the piano, see? He carried on playing, had a sip, and he was playing with one hand, and he picked up a full bottle of Dimple Hague, you know, these triangular bottles <laughs> with wire around them, and he slid it across the, the 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 varnished top of this piano. Derek caught it, and he picked up two glasses, and he spanned those, and we caught those. And his first words to Derek Joseph John, who he'd never met before, was, "Drink that." Carried on playing. <laughs> so I looked at Derek, <laughs> and he looked at me, and I said. We better drink it. He said, okay. So we got stuck into this <laughs> bottle of Dimple Hague. And after what seemed an eternity, certainly it must have been 15 or 20 minutes, we managed to demolish most of this, you see. And after that, he stopped playing the piano and he started talking, so on and so forth. And to cut a long story short, later on that afternoon, we were, we, we, we jumped into uh, his his jet ranger with his pilot and we flew onto the roof of his jazz club in San Paolo and over dinner and lots of nice traditional jazz he put down a financial deposit for I think it was about 12 111s and there was there was no no just a, well it, he didn't put down he, it was a gentleman's agreement there was no paperwork nothing like that and we got back, and John Rogers was, I suppose, he, I hope he's still alive. He was in our contract department at Wavy. He said, Derek, you know, where's the paper? Derek said, I've got nothing. He said, Christ, he said, you know, we can't do business like that. And Derek said, it's going to work. And it worked, and it worked for cash. In those days, in good old American dollars, when they were about 240 to the pound, mm. and it all happened. And, of course, in those days, sometimes things like that did happen. It would be unheard of today. You couldn't possibly do it. Well, then, some uh, the following year, or maybe the year after, I don't, he was then a 
you know, a respected guest at Farnborough, along with lovely people like dear old Don Kendall and Max Hazelton and people like that. And he was at the um, Farnborough Air Show. And this chap, Holly, I was talking to about, this admin guy that I had to go and see who arrived back five minutes before he went home. And it give, mm. you know, start on Monday sort of thing. Um, Holly used to run the chalet at Farnborough, the BAC chalet in the days when there was lots of money, corporate money about and stuff like that. And Don Pierce, who was the uh, foreman of the carpenters, he used to set up the chalet. It was all quite nice and folks in those days. And he had worked, he, he worked in pubs, Don. He ran the bar of the chalet, which was really rather nice. So, I mean, as soon as you went in the morning, feeling quite dreadful, Don would immediately pass you you know, a port and brandy, and that would sort of set you up for the rest of the day. But we were in there one day, and Geoffrey Knight, Geoffrey Edgerton Knight, who was the, 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 the boss of the commercial aircraft division, ex-Marine, smooth as a well-boiled icicle, actually, super chap, actually. He was entertaining Omar Fontana. And Omar Fontana and Geoffrey Knight both smoked really quite good cigars, as Moritz Souter used to. Havana, if they must, but preferably Dominican, even better, they thought. And uh, Don had a box of cigars behind the bar for sort of special VIPs and so on. And Holly always used to employ, I think he was the apprentice of the year at Weybridge or something, and one of his treats was that he would be at Farnborough, and he'd be the gopher in the chalet. They would take this message to the press, take all this sort of stuff. And this, uh, this, this little apprentice fellow, I thought he looked a bit sort of uh, red in the cheeks that morning. Geoffrey and I asked him to get this box of cigars. So he went to Don, he got this box of cigars. And I noticed that as he offered this boxes or gave his box of cigars to, to, to offer them round Jeffrey Knight and Omar Fontana first, of course. Not only had he sort of uncharacteristically sort of pulled one out, so had the cigar, but the one he'd pulled out had a different wrapper from all the others. Mm -hmm. I thought, mm, okay. So he, he got this thing and he lit it and this apprentice chap said to me, he said, Oh, he said, Mr. Savage, he said, you watch this. And this cigar was lit, Jeffrey Knight lit the cigar. And after a few seconds, there was this resounding explosion. And it was one of these joke exploding cigars. And there was poor Omar Fontana, you know, with, with black ash all over his face. And sort of cinders on the floor. Anyway, he took it very well. <laughs> and um, needless to say, that was the last we ever saw of that apprentice, either there or back at Weybridge. Mm. Now, that was the exploding cigar. Oh, dear. You should have known dear old John Spedding. This is, a, this is purely a story against myself and may not be appropriate, but I think you might be quite amused by it. It's really, again, it happened soon after I joined BAC and I thought I was going to lose my job. Um, we were desperate to try and sell the one left 
to what was then called NZNAC, New Zealand National Aircraft Corporation. I don't know what it's called now, but the internal airline, I suppose it's probably run by Air New Zealand now. And they were looking for, um, uh, it was between us or the 737. As a result of that demonstration, they got sensible and bought the 737, I might say. And we were quite keen to get this order. And we had, we were staying at a place called the White Heron Lodge in, in Auckland. We had an agent, uh, well, not an agent, a PR, well, he was a PR consultant. Lovely chap called John Spedding, who became a great friend of mine, died a few years ago, so much so that he was, he was actually my second best man in Sydney Registry Office in February 72. But there again, that's another different story. And um, he was he was a freelance PR bloke. He looked after Alan Ponsford, who was the PR man of BOAC in those days and and so on. And, and we used him. He was, he was very effective, ex-newspaper man. And... Uh, I hadn't met this man Spedding. He was picked by by this Roger White Smith chap. And, uh, anyway, it was decided that what we would do in those days, you could rent space on New Zealand radio for ads. Why not television? I don't know, but certainly radio. Long time ago, maybe they just didn't have television ads in those days in New Zealand. And so space was edited, and the big trick that, that Roger Whitesmith, the tour manager, very sensibly organised, there was a chap called Doug Patterson, who was the general manager of, of this airline, of NAC, and, and, and his crew, and the aeroplane was going to arrive at a particular time. It was the opening of the new Auckland Airport, Mangary. That's it. And it was a flying display for the opening of this airport, and we took part in it. And the aircraft was somewhere up in Asia, and it was finding its way down to, to New Zealand. And I was, we, a tape was made by Charles Gardner to be played on radio. And the big deal was that it be played on the radio, and uh, Roger White Smith would get Doug Patterson and, and all his fellow company directors to have a glass in his suite, the white hair and rod, switch on the radio and listen to this tape, which was a compilation of Freddie Laker, Harding Lawrence of Braniff, um, C.L. Smith of American, whoever was the boss of Mohawk, um, uh, somebody from Rolls-Royce on the Spay engine, I mean, you can imagine the difficulty of making this tape in the first place. Um, getting all these people together. And it was it was interlinked by Charles Gardner, who, having been BBC Across Bonnet, of course, was perfect to do the job. So this tape was precious. And I was given this tape to take out to New Zealand. John Spedding had organised all this down there on our behalf, hand over the tape to John Spedding, and what a super PR coup that would have been, you see. Copybook case, PR case, I would suggest. Well, the last place I left was Ceylon, and in those days it was still called Ceylon, where we were demonstrating to Air Ceylon. And I went down to New Zealand and the aircraft probably went up to Tokyo or somewhere and, and so on. So I went, I, I 
I guarded this thing with my life, this tape, you <laughs> see. And every time I stopped at the hotel, you know, I put it in the hotel safe in reception long before they had safes in their yeah. bedrooms, things like that. Take it up the next morning and, you know, the traveler's checks and my, my job to pay the transport bills and all this crap that you have to do on these demo things. And uh, anyway, I got to Ceylon and I, I paid the bills and I cleared everything up and I left the Mount Lavinia or the Taprobane or, or the Gallface Hotel, wherever I was staying in Colombo on that day. And I got on the aeroplane and I flew down to New Zealand and on um, an airline, I can't remember what airline it was, you see. To arrive in New Zealand um, four or five days before the aircraft came back from wherever it was, you see. And I'd never met this big Spedding before, John Spedding. And um, halfway across the Pacific, we were well on the way to Auckland, and I thought, shit, that tape's in the hotel safe. In Ceylon. <laughs> Jesus, God, forgive and bless, feeling good, Lord, but <laughs> I did think something like that. What am I going to do? I'm newly married. I've been with BAC for a short time. I'm never going to get another job. I'm going to be fired. <laughs> so anyway, I thought, well, I'd better have a couple of gin and tonics on this to sort of get my head straight, you see. So I arrived at the airport. I didn't know what this bloke John Spelling looked like, really. Anyway, as we taxied in... There was this chap who looked, I don't know if you remember, but there used to be a bloke called Arthur English, who was a sort of spiv, a, a, a radio comedian spiv, with a sort of a little, little, not a nice <laughs> moustache like yours, a little clip of such, you know what I mean? He'd sell stockings on the, on the street corner, you know, one silk stocking, all this sort of chap. Um, might sell cars in Warren Street, that sort of chap. <laughs> uh, walking up, smoking a cigarette, airside, Mm -hmm. And of course, it was John Spenning. He knew all the people at Auckland Airport, you see. And he then he had, which was unusual for people in New News, he had a lovely old Rover 75. And British cars were rather costly in New Zealand in those. Anyway, he got this, these big keen on cars. Got this Rover 75. We were driving to his home, you see, too. And I, I introduced myself and Mr. Spenning. And he said, Oh, he said, You got everything? I said, Yeah, I've got all the, all the brochures and. And the press kits and all that sort of stuff, and I've got the you know the rooming list of the hotels we can check that out and so on and so forth. Driving to his home, and I said, um, "Bit of a problem, actually." And he said, "What's that?" And I explained the, you know, the key thing that this tape was in the hotel salon, and he, and he didn't say when he squeezed on the brakes and straight into a sort of Roadhouse, he said, We need a drink quickly. And I said, Yes. And so uh, we went out. He, I said, he said, I said, What are we going to do? He said, We can't sit here on our fritters doing nothing. You know, we've got to, we've got to retrieve this situation. So I said, Well, we'll, we'll send a, a, a telex, of course, in those days to the, to the hotel. Uh, and this thing had been put together by the film unit at, at Weybridge, Jack DeConnick, who was a, a, a chap who ran it. And and, and, so we, and I thought, well, there's no chance of getting it anyway. And I, I sent one back to 
to Jack DeConnick as well. I'm not saying I lost it, but saying, you know, these, these third world countries like New Zealand, they'll probably erase it. Might be useful to have a spare. And mm-hmm. got a spare with me, you see. And we, we waited for a couple and nothing happened. John said, look, you know, we got to do something. He said, he said nobody that, that's going to listen to this tape has the slightest idea what Freddie Laker sounds like or Harding Lawrence or, Brett, or any of them. He said, now, I've got a mate called Bernie Cornthwaite, and he's an expatriate here. He said, he's got, he's got a Cockney voice. He can be Freddie Laker. He said, have you got the script? I said, yeah, I've got the script. He said, he said I know a bloke who works for Pan Am here. He said, he can be Harding Lawrence. And we got all this together. And he said, we'll, we'll have to come clean with Roger White Smith when he comes through. But he said... We're going to have to make another tape. So we got around. He had one of the wonderful round tables in his dining room, all inlaid with these wonderful New Zealand woods and so on. We sat around this table with copious bottles of whiskey, and we made this tape. <laughs> and you know, talk about savages' luck. Oh, he he alerted the customs people at Auckland. And said, "Look, if any comes in, let me know." And as luck would have it, the, it, literally, the aircraft was coming in early afternoon and they were all going to meet in this room and listen to this tape. And the very morning the aircraft was supposed to arrive, John got a call from the, from the folks in uh, at the customs people to say that the, the duplicate from Weybridge had arrived. We never got the one from Ceylon. And we didn't have to tell anybody at all about it. We played this tape and always will. So you never oh had my, to play there. My God, that was a that was a close call for me. Uh, yes. Only only an aside. I don't I don't know if you're aware, but at Brooklyn's they've got the the Omani VC ten there. You'll notice yeah. that none of the gold taps remain. Some of these nick those before mm. before it got there. Yeah. That one used to be Freddie Laker's one with the yes. big door on the yes, front. Which yeah. I'm sure you know, BUA. When you had BUA, well, that I got I got to know the Royal Flight quite well, actually. I never met Sultan Caboose, although I got to know the, the, the crews. They're mainly Aussies and Brits flying these aircraft. But we, it was quite interesting, really. We were talking to, with Peter, to the uh, some of the Omani Royal Flight people some years ago at some air show, because they were vaguely interested in the humidity system for, for their aircraft. And they said that Sultan Kabir, he doesn't like flying at all. And apparently he bought, fairly, well, I say fairly recently, within the last 10 years, he bought a new, must have been one of the last off the line, 747-400. I think they said he'd, he'd, he'd owned it for something like four years by then. And it only done about 3,000 hours. The, the solid thing... It's, a, it's, you, it's, a, it's an example of how you have to get your flight planning right. And really, if you're going to, if you're going to do something uh, and you want, you want something sorted out from the point of view of diplomatic clearances and refueling and all that sort of stuff around the world, it's worth putting some money into somebody like International Air Radio to do it for you. People have got it there. We... Um, 
were taking a 2000 down to the Australian Air Show. It's fairly recent times, or well, some from 97, it's probably be about 95, something like that. And um, there was a bicentennial air show in 86, and that was going to be a one-off for Australia. And of course it wasn't, and they've had the Avalon air show ever since on an annual basis, I think. But we took, we were going to take the aircraft down there, and we wet leased a 2000 from Crossair. And I was allegedly the tour manager for this thing. And I said, look, I, I really feel it's going to be a costly exercise anyway, and it's budgeted for. We really ought to get the flight planning done by somebody who knows what they're about. No, 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 Crossair can do it, I was told. You know, the Swiss, they're very precise people. Another mistake I made. Neither <laughs> the Swiss nor the Japanese are quite so good as they're made out to be sometimes. Anyway, and um, no, no, they can do it. Okay, fine. So we go on the aeroplane and we trundle down and we get as far as, I can't remember where, we're on our way to to Denpasar in Indonesia to refuel and then lob into somewhere in North Australia, probably Newcastle, somewhere like that, or Darwin, and then get on our way down to to uh, New South Wales. Where the hell was it we, we left for? I can't remember. Anyway, it was a night flight, and we were over the that bit of the Pacific, which is not you know terribly nice anyway. And um, the guys caught there was the, there's a crew on board, and I was on board. One or two engineers. It was a staging flight. And the guys up front who were driving us, the Crossair crew, got onto uh, ATC and they said, um, you can't land. And we said, they said, well, you know, why can't we land? Well, you're supposed to be here tomorrow and you can't land today. It's, it's not permitted. You, you'll have to go back. We said, well, we, we can't go back. We haven't got enough fuel. And there's no alternate. We've got we we've got to come, otherwise we're going to fall into the sea. It really was mm. like that, without exaggeration. In the end, because it'd be quite difficult for <clears throat> some of these Asian people, these bureaucrats. And in the end, they said, "Okay, Swiss registered, which helped, I think. You can land, but you will be under. You will be under." Um, armed guard. So we landed at Denpasar and we were escorted right over one side of the airfield and it was the middle of the night and it was hot and humid and we were tired and sticky and sweaty and horrible and we were told to leave everything on the aircraft, hand over our passports and come with us. Leave don't, don't bring things so I sensed that um, we might possibly be, be in for a little bit of a tricky situation. Mm. So I managed to smuggle, you know these little gold pins of aircraft that everybody has? Mm. They are really, no pun intended, worth their waiting on. I managed to smuggle a bag of those somewhere on my being. We weren't <laughs> allowed to bring out any luggage or anything like that. And we were taken by a police escort to the Garuda 
first class lounge, which was empty, middle of the night, nobody there at all. And we were locked in. And that was that. We had no wait a minute, somebody yeah, wait a minute. I think that I think the captain had a very slim mobile with him that they didn't find when he was frisked. But anyway, everything else was <clears throat> on the air. We had nothing. And we were left there. Now, fortunately, you know, we had running water, we had a loo. And you know, it's there, and there were, I know there were quite a lot of us on board the aeroplane, actually. We didn't, fortunately, we didn't have any customers, but we must have had a, we had a crew, we had an engineering crew, we had spare pilots, we had, we had uh, crosshair hostesses. And you know, when you get into that situation, Bill, you, you realize the sort of people that you'd like to be with in a crisis, <laughs> and the people that you would rather not be with. Mm. Panic sets in very often. And I had some sort of duties to a manager. Yeah. And I thought well, the best thing to do, probably, is to empty the bar, the first class bar, which we did. And the, and the panic-stricken people basically collapsed, and that was that. <laughs> and we were left, nobody knew where we were or what had happened, and this isn't any exaggeration at all, for two days. And people were getting a bit twitched, actually. You know, was there a blip on the screen somewhere that some aeroplane had fallen into the sea, for example? And the the guy eventually, and how we, why we didn't, he didn't do it beforehand, I don't know. But there was a good reason for it. He eventually somehow got hold of the Swiss consulate on his on this mobile, and he got the Swiss consulate along. Once he got the mobile, I said, "Well, we might as well have a crack at the British Embassy, remembering my previous, uh, my previous experience." And, and that was a damn squib, as you might suppose. And eventually, after just over two days, the Swiss consulate got us out, and there was some horrendous fine that had to be paid, and we hadn't got any money. I mean, we got we, the, the 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 crew had got their usual. You know, their fuel carnets and things mm. like that to, to pay for these things. They wouldn't accept any any cards of that nature at all. So in fact in fact the Swiss got us out of the out of the mess. But but no frankly, no thanks to the crosshair crew. And and they had actually flight planned the wrong date of entry. I forget what the month was, but it it was something like you know, it was a leap year and they hadn't forgotten it was a leap year. Yeah, something yeah. that sort, I don't yeah. know. Or maybe they thought March had 32 days in or something of that sort. <laughs> and, and um, I mean, wives and people like that at home had no idea what happened to us. Nobody had the slightest. And of course, the guys at Avalon, the Martin Craigs. You haven't I mean, turned up, have you? You know, we, fortunately, we were getting there early and we just got down there. To, uh, to do a, a, a low fly past on the opening day of the air show and then land. And my God, I, I said, dear old Martin Craig, and I said, Martin, don't let anyone on this aeroplane. It smells like a pigsty, really. But that was, that was the event. And I can't think of anything else. 
at the moment that is of note or interest on us. I mean, the whole 12 years at Saab was a, was a dream. It was lovely. But I can't remember anything else that's, uh, <laughs> that's of, of, of note from the Saab days.